all paranormal postulants and supernatural scrutineers, I bid you welcome. You are about to experience the Occultaria of Albion audio tales. The Occultaria of Albion is a hauntological exploration of strange phenomena. It is a world where the abnormal and arcane do exist. As well as this podcast, you can also explore our publications and other materials by going to the website occultariaofalbion.co.uk. Now, make yourself comfortable, but not too comfortable. Although this happened a long time ago, even now I cannot help but think about it every day. I try to forgive myself, my 13 year old self that is. He couldn't help but be swept along by the powerful emotions involved in all that happened. There was a sense of adventure for him too. It was the excitement and the danger that was really the driving force when all is said and done. Now, as a grey-haired man with aches and scars, when I look in the mirror, I only find faint traces of that boy that had so much vitality. Back then, I lived in Norfolk, and had always done so, apart from the first 18 months of my life, when my parents resided in North London. They had a small ground-floor flat, which was constantly damp in winter and full of ants in the summer. I have no memory of this time, only later memories of my father recounting stories of frost on the windows inside of the flat and the large damp patch on the wall of the kitchen that my parents named Uncle Brian, whom they joked should be contributing to the rent. When the opportunity for my father to take a job in Norwich came along, and with my mother's parents also living in Norfolk, they decided to get away from London and we moved to a village called Saxborough, around 20 miles from Norwich. I was five years old when I was told that I was going to become a big brother and that a new baby sister would soon be arriving to join our family. Of course, I did not understand how this would all happen. I remember thinking that my dad would arrive home one day on his motorcycle and in the pannier would be a baby wrapped in a blanket. I understood even less when I was told a few months later that there had been problems with the birth and neither my sister or mother would be coming home. It didn't make sense, but hardly anything did for a long time. After that, it was just me and my dad, but he was different. Everything was different. Life became my father and me. There were photographs of my mother, but they gradually became photographs of someone I didn't know, someone I had only faint memories of. I could have asked my dad to tell me about the woman that smiled with kind eyes 
but I didn't. The moment to ask real questions about her never seemed to come. It was in September of 1981, when I was 13, that I learnt about Hecate Hopkirk. My uncle Peter, who wasn't a real uncle, but an old friend of my dad's, came to visit. He arrived on his large red motorcycle. There's a photo somewhere of me sat on the bike in our driveway. You can't see my face because I'm wearing Uncle Peter's helmet, but I'm giving a big thumbs up gesture with one hand and holding the throttle with the other. Uncle Peter brought with him a book he thought my dad would enjoy. When they were young, they both rode motorbikes, though my dad had long since sold his Triumph. The book was titled Riding in the Dark, British Biker Gangs, 1963-1978. The book was left in our living room, untouched for several weeks. Then, one Saturday afternoon, my dad was called into work unexpectedly, and I was left alone to mope about the house. Benji, he told me, as he put his shoes on, don't do anything daft while I'm gone. At some point that afternoon, I picked up Riding in the Dark. For the first time, I noticed its front cover. Black and purple, and a photograph of an expressionist biker who looked like something from Lord of the Rings. It was fantastical, and yet, this biker was driving down a road that was obviously British. There were dry stone walls along its side and rolling fields with sheep in the distance. I began to read about the outlaw biker gangs which existed in the UK, something which up until then I thought only existed in American films. The gang that captivated me the most were the Sinister Sisters. As the name suggested, the Sinister Sisters were an all-girl biker gang and, even among other gangs, they were considered a strange bunch. As the writer of the book said, they were disciples of some weird cosmic black magic thing, and I was fascinated. They rode all across East Anglia in the Midlands, but what enchanted me most of all was their leader, a woman named Hecate Hopkirk. On one page there was a photograph of her. She wasn't on a motorbike, it looked as if it had been taken at a party, and she'd been captured unaware. There were other members of the Sinister Sisters around, but it was Hecate that my eyes were drawn to. There seemed to be an aura to her. I couldn't explain it then, and when I think about it now, I still have difficulty in pinning down what it was about her. It was the same something that the photographs of my mother had. As I read about Hecate on that empty afternoon in the house, I was confused, excited, and spellbound. It wasn't long after this that the dreams started. Not every night, but two or three times a week, Hecate Hopkirk would ride through my sleep on her motorcycle, chasing me down a dark road, trees as sentinels along both sides. Their arthritic clusters of branches stark in the moonlight that soaked the scene. It was fearful, but the fabric of the dream was soft somehow. I did not feel terror, not completely. I felt the thrill of it. The dream came back time and again, the chase lasting a little longer, Hecate getting closer. At last, in the dream, I became bold, and I turned to watch the motorbike scream past me on the road. Hecate was not alone. A figure rode pillion behind her. It was my mother, smiling as she smiled in the photographs. I kept these dreams to myself. My dad did not even notice that I had taken the book up to my room. I read the whole thing, but it was the chapter on the Sinister Sisters that I read over and over. 
the two women that appeared in my recurring dream had at least one thing in common. They were both dead. The book explained that in 1971, Hecate Hopkirk had been challenged for the leadership of the gang by another member, Maggie Damore. Gang rules meant that the two women had to race to settle the question of leadership. In the final moments of the contest, Hecate crashed. There were rumours that Demore had caused her rival to lose control, but nothing ever came of it. Hecate went flying from her bike and was thrown through a hedge at the roadside. According to the book, her body was never found. In time, everyone came to believe that she had died. The lack of a body was just Hopkirk's weird black magic thing. I don't know if I believed it, part of me did, but I became desperate to find out as much as I could about the Sinister Sisters. I went to the library in the bigger village up the road, but they had nothing. I went into Norwich on the bus, but even there I drew a blank. The dreams continued, my mother riding with Hopkirk in the moonlight. The dream began to alter. I was running from the motorbike and Hecate was getting angrier and angrier my mother too. She would scream at Hecate to go faster to catch me. Everything seemed to happen in slow motion, as dreams often do. As I ran, I turned and called for them to stop. I only wanted to talk to them, I shouted above the thunder of the engine. They did not stop. At the end of the dream, I would turn back to face the road ahead and suddenly the headlights of a car would blind me and I would wake up my arms wrapped about the bedsheets and my legs kicking frantically. It was a couple of months later when I finally found out something else about Hecate Hopkirk. I'd started to look in every possible place where I might find information about her or the Sinister Sisters. One day I was in a charity shop in Norwich and was rifling through the old magazines they had in a crate on the floor. There was one called Immoral Guardian and on the cover it signposted an interview with John Pitt, author of the book my Uncle Peter had given us. I felt my whole body begin to buzz when I saw it. I bought the mag and turned to the interview as soon as I left the shop. Pitt only spoke briefly about the sisters, but the information changed everything. He mentioned the location of the infamous duel between Maggie Damore and Hecate Hopkirk. It had taken place at a roundabout called Cow Parsley Cross. It was only a few miles from Saxborough. I was stunned. It seemed as if this couldn't be a coincidence. There was a reason for all of this and for my dreams. Sometimes when the dreams came, it was different and Hecate would be standing at the roadside and I would walk toward her, but as I got closer, her face would change. The skin rotting away to reveal the face of my mother underneath. She looked at me so sadly. I began to realise that something had to be done. It seemed as if I might have nightmares forever and their regularity was beginning to affect me. My father had noticed a change but put it down to adolescence and the moodiness of teenage boys. Bianca Pinder was the only person I knew who I thought might be able to help. She was in the sixth form at my school and lived in Saxborough too. I knew her from around the village and once, when I'd fallen off my bike, 
she gave me a handkerchief for the blood on my arm and helped me to wheel the bike home. At school our paths rarely crossed and when they did she never acknowledged me. Even so I decided she was someone who might be able to provide some guidance. My main reason for thinking this was because she was into new age stuff like crystals and Ouija boards and most people at school knew her as the weird girl. It was one evening in the middle of the week I told my dad that I was going to a friend's house to do some homework. He raised an eyebrow at that but nodded and told me to be back by eight. I set off for Bianca's house. I'd expected her mum to answer the door but it was Bianca herself who stood looking at me. Benjamin Hadley, she said, with neither surprise nor annoyance. I wasn't sure what to say, so I told her I needed some advice. She seemed to consider things for a moment, then nodded. Come in, she told me. We sat in the living room. Her parents' record player had one of Bianca's records on it, and more of her singles were scattered on the floor. She turned the loud guitar noise down and flopped onto the sofa. Bianca had more makeup on than I'd seen her wearing at school. She looked a little scary, but I couldn't help but stare. I wondered if I'd made a mistake. So, Benjamin Hadley, she said with a more curious tone, is it girl trouble? I laughed at that, then explained everything to Bianca as best I could. I wasn't sure how she would respond, but she listened to what I told her and even interrupted me with questions a few times. In certain places, she nodded, and when I had finished, she let out a deep breath. Interesting, was all she said to begin with. These spirits want you to make contact with them, she proclaimed. Both of them, I asked, confused. That's how it seems, she said, nodding. Your mum's spirit has latched onto the spirit of this Hecate Hopkirk, maybe because of the proximity of Cow Parsley Cross. It's like your mum is hitching a ride with Hecate's energy. That's why she's now able to make contact with you in your dreams. Well, what should I do? I asked after a moment. Communicate, she said, as if it were obvious. I listened to Bianca Pinder as she talked about ways of connecting with the spirit world. She seemed to know a lot about it and mentioned pamphlets and books from a witchcraft shop in London which she had visited many times. I think she would have gone on all night and I found myself nodding along, although most of what she said remained completely mysterious to me. After about half an hour, her mum came home. She was dressed in a nurse's uniform and had just finished her shift at the hospital. She looked at me kindly and asked if I wanted to stay for tea. I took the opportunity to thank Bianca and explained I needed to go. Bianca said she would write down some key points for me. The next day at school, she handed me a piece of paper and whispered, good luck. I didn't look at what she'd written until I got home. I wanted to concentrate on it fully. I didn't want to take the chance that I might lose it or have someone snatch it from me. Essentially, Bianca informed me I had to find objects that would have a connection to both my mother and Hecate. And I had to put them together with something from myself, like hair or fingernails. I decided on my fingernails for this. There was an incantation too taken, Bianca said, from the best book she owned and which she had used to successfully communicate with her grandmother. At the end of the note, Bianca explained that communication with the spirits can take place anywhere, but going to a place where there is a connection to the person you are hoping to contact usually helps things. That night, as I lay awake in bed, unable to sleep, 
I decided what I would do. I would go to where Hecate Hopkirk had crashed. It seemed to me it was a place where the energies were strong and, most likely, it was the place where my dreams were set. Once I'd made this decision, I began to feel better. It felt like I was finally doing something. The dream returned the following evening, but now I felt calm about it. I was able to view it all as if I were watching a video. It was just a signal being projected into my head and it couldn't do me any harm. It was a Friday evening and my dad was still at work when I got home from school. December had arrived and with it several days of icy weather roaring in as if winter had remembered its appointment with the untended earth and barren trees. I grabbed everything I needed, a photo of my mother, the biker book and an envelope containing my recent fingernail clippings. I left a note telling my dad I'd gone to a friend's house. Though it wasn't far to the bus stop, I almost slipped on the frosted sleet that had fallen the day before. All the dead leaves had been blown about and become trapped in the sudden frost which only made the pavements mushier. Even as I got to the stop, across the road I saw Mrs Perkins from the newsagent slip over. She had to cling to a lamppost to save herself from tumbling. Inside the bus it was warm and the windows were opaque with condensation so that the world outside was gone, a grey blur punctuated by ghostly streetlights. I closed my eyes and felt the excitement in my blood. I thought of my mum and I felt her near to me in a way she had not been for years. It was comforting but at the same time I was frightened. It was as if these sensations belonged to the past and it was wrong to dig them up. The bus trundled along. From outside in the darkness came the thumping growl of a motorbike engine. As it got nearer, it got louder and then it was alongside the bus and its noise was frightening. There were only a few other passengers but we were all startled. Some looked about or wiped at a window to try and see where the bike was. The sputtering anger seemed to be all around us. The driver too was unsettled, swearing loudly as he gazed and gawped at his mirrors and over his shoulder. It lasted no more than a minute and the motorbike disappeared as suddenly as it had arrived. The driver condemned the perpetrator as a bloody lunatic and then settled back down. I think my legs shook a little as I got up for my stop. Thoughts of the motorbike and Hecate Hopkirk were still swirling through my brain when the driver announced we were at Tudley Bridge, where I had to get off to walk to Cow Parsley Cross. Fog had appeared, muffling the darkness. As I watched the bus pull away, I was filled with doubt and thought of turning back and going home. The next bus back to Saxborough wouldn't be for two hours, and standing in the cold seemed more ridiculous after coming so far. So. Taking the torch from my bag, I began to walk along the barren country road toward Cow Parsley Cross. With each step, the fog thickened, until I could just about make out the frosty tarmac at my feet. I was almost at the spot when it happened. I cannot give you a detailed account, just as I couldn't for the police. Through the fog, I could hear distant voices. I couldn't make out what they were saying, the voices were female and they were agitated. I stopped and swung the torch about in all directions, but I could not tell where the voices were coming from. I could not tell if it was real or just the blood pumping in my ears. I thought I heard my name. 
Benji, Benji. I recognised the sound of my mother's voice. She was calling out to me. I became disorientated. The fog and the darkness suddenly coughed up the noise of an engine and a bright light. It wasn't a motorbike, but a car, and its headlights blinded me. I stumbled, and then I was struck by ice-cold metal. I don't remember any pain. Not then. All I remember is closing my eyes and seeing my mother reaching out to me. When I regained consciousness, I found myself in a hospital bed. Bianca Pinder's mother was the nurse at my bedside. You're safe, she told me. Everything is going to be okay now. She smiled and said she would bring my father in. In my confusion, I thought I might be back at Bianca's house, in her living room with the record player. But it wasn't. It was a hospital room, and through the blinds I could see it was snowing outside. A drunk driver had struck me with their car, and I had sustained some quite horrific injuries. The worst of it was that my left arm had been amputated, just above the elbow, due to having been so mangled. I didn't remember much about the accident itself. I still don't to this day. My last clear memory was hearing my mother and seeing her emerge from the dark. I think she was warning me. I think she had been all along, my mother and Hecate Hopkirk together. I've lived my life with a constant reminder of that night, the scars and the damage, but the dreams have never returned. They didn't need to, I suppose. Since my journey to Cow Parsley Cross, I've believed and felt that my mother is always nearby, an absent presence. This audio tale was written and narrated by Richard Daniels and was a Pylon Phaser production. For more information, go to occultariumalbion.co.uk. he flicked through the copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam he was carrying and came to the last page. Then he carefully tore out the words Tamim Shad and put that small piece of paper in his trouser pocket. One of the labourers, along with the site agent, saw the figure. He couldn't see the head in detail, but it looked like somebody wearing a long dress. You said that uh, you saw two, um, what would you call them? Um, aliens. Aliens, you call them. Uh, and, and where were the aliens in relation to the, uh, to the craft?
As Yet Unexplained, Series 6, available soon.